I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't, please have a look at patreon.com slash Comes. Harry, which taste sensations are making life worth living this time? Well, I've got a very excited Dan Briggs. After the Andy Cap snacks, I thought I'd never see anything like it again. But I've got some um, ketchup-flavoured Cheetos, Ooh. and which are Polish. And I noticed that I bought them the other day, but I noticed they're, they're already uh, nearly a month past their sell-by date. Anyway, <laughs> but what's particularly exciting about them is they've got a competition, which is a, a strap of about a competition, which is all in Polish which features a picture of a terrier and a cat. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's saying that if you... It's something to do if you collect so and so many of these things, you'll either get a cat or you'll get a bowl, or whether it's saying that these Cheetos are actually pet food. I'm not sure. <laughs> but anyway, they're ketchup-flavoured Cheetos. And then excitingly, to follow for pudding, I've got some Lush Cocoa Cream Cookies. Lush is the name of the... Not, I'm not just... you know That's not my description of them. That's the name of the company. And they're from Turkey... And aside from containing containing cotton oil, um, which is obviously something that I look out for in my in my confectionery, <laughs> I see that the third the third highest ingredient in it is tahini dam. Oh, which I thought they would appeal to you as a, a sort of leaf hipster that you are. <laughs> um, so anyway, so they're lush. They're espresso lush cocoa cream cookies from Turkey. And then we did have a request about vegan about mm. vegan sweets from Pie the Non League Dog. And I have got some fruit pastels here, which it says are vegan-friendly. I don't know whether it means they're actually vegan or they're not vegan, but if there's any veganism going on, they'd be happy to watch. Not really sure. But anyway, so that's what I've got down. But the Cheetos, look, listen to them there. And it says, made of corn, not fried. Ooh. I don't know why that's a plus point. There you go. I do like a, a ketchup crisp. Not many of the other sauces have made it in, as a crisp flavour. I suppose there's Worcestershire. 
sauce flavour, but there's no brown sauce crisp to my knowledge. No, you'd think there? there'd be you'd think there'd be some special Henderson sauce flavour yeah. ones for Sheffield. Yeah. Because they would just sell out, wouldn't they, in Sheffield? Yeah. Yes, they would. Henderson sauce. Henderson's relish. Lovely relish. And That's what right, else? A lovely relish. Henderson's relish. <laughs> what else has been delighting you? I heard that a Midsummer Murders DVD has made you happier than you could ever expected to have been made happy by a Midsummer. Well, well I, I did, Dan. Yes, because uh, my, my parents live in an area where the Billsdale transmitter, the uh, the TV transmitter that burned down. Um, my parents live in an area that's served by that transmitter. And because they are 86, they don't have Wi-Fi and they don't have satellites. They don't have any television at all, which when you're 86, you know, it's like a big sound. I have to go around every week. I go around the charity shops, the local charity shops, looking for DVDs to send them. So, yeah, I found it, the, the Midsummer Murders Christmas special with John Nettles. I found that, so I did. I lit, almost I punched the air, especially because I'd also found a box set of the first season of Lewis as well in another charity oh, shop. So it's just like bonanza. it was fantastic. It was like a what a double bill for them. That'll keep them going for at least eight hours <laughs> until the transmitters back up. But apart from that, um, I saw an interesting game the other day. I saw something that I've never seen before in a, in a match. Um, a re- the referee made a player take a throw in from nearer the opposition goal than he wanted to take it, with the words, backwards is the same as forwards. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? Instead of stealing yards, he was actually donating them, but the ref wouldn't let him. It was very, I've never seen that before. And the guy who was taking the throw, it was quite, he was one of those players you see in non-league football who looks absolutely shattered from the moment the kickoff, you know, from kickoff, he was absolutely shattered. His mouth was hanging open, his eyes were glassy, and his face was all kind of blurry. And so he had to keep running up to take these long throws because he was a long throw expert. He was a fullback. And then if he took the long throw and the opposition goalkeeper got it, you could hear him. He just let out this audible sigh as he had to then run all the way back into his own half. Um, So he was quite a character. Um, Also, the coach of the team was one of the few coaches that I've ever heard. He was sort of progressive. At one point, he shouted out, we're too predictable. And then later on, hit it into some new areas. <laughs> you know, I thought that was it. I've never heard that sort of thing before. I, quite, I do quite like that. I'm going to have to start saying that in my life in general, I think. Yeah, hit it into some new areas. Yeah, yeah I think that's a good advice for us all. Yeah, you're used to just the, the normal, you know, big five minutes and tempo, but, you know, we're too predictable. I don't know. Anyway, and the other thing that George Burns once said that the problem with America was that all the people who should be running the country are driving taxis and cutting hair. And in the case of Britain, all the people who should be running the country are sitting behind me at non-league games. Because there was two men at Dunstan, and they were talking about the crisis in the shops. And one of them said, you see, I've, I've noticed that the pots of jam in Aldi have got smaller. That's their way of dealing with it. And the other man said, what do you mean? And he says, well, if they're smaller, aren't they, you'll get more of them on the trucks. <laughs> And that seems like the obvious solution, doesn't it? Now, why hire more drivers? Why not just make all the packages <laughs> half the size? That way you'd get twice as much stuff on every lorry. The shelves would be filled. Hey, presto. If only Boris Johnson would listen to the men behind me at non-league football, there would be no crisis at all, Dan. <laughs> Any news from London Way, Andy? Have you done your stint as Watford manager yet? Uh, yes, mine was overnight about a year ago. Um, I, I slept through most of it, but it was a, it was a learning experience for everyone, I think. And I think they've taken on board some of the things I suggested. Yeah, as we mentioned in the last podcast, Forest have had fourteen managers in ten years, and now so, now so of Watford, the traditional autumnal sacking. 
um, Hisco uh, Munoz gone and uh, Claudio Ranieri now in. So, I mean, I mean, obviously Watford have done mostly okay over the last decade. So I suppose the owners might say that this kind of mad hiring and firing policy works. So maybe the team would still be doing better. Yeah, we'd do even better if the owners just didn't keep messing about. Um, something we didn't mention on the last podcast, actually, is that Wolves have become the first UK club to start their own record label, which is unimaginatively called Wolves Records. Um, it's in partnership with some big company, Warner Music, I think. So their artists will be getting regular air- airplay at the, st- at the stadium. But if it had happened in Stan Cullis' day, they could have signed the Beatles, couldn't they? <laughs> or maybe at, maybe at least Wayne Fontana on the Mindbend, as I, I mentioned. But they've got the Beverly sisters, wouldn't they, straight away? Oh, of course, Billy, but yes, Billy Wright. Well, the captain was married to one of the Beverly sisters. Yeah, they've sisters. been straight in, on the label, wouldn't they? In, in interviews, the Beverly sisters, when, in those days, would always apparently refer to him as England Captain Billy Wright, rather than just calling him <laughs> Billy. I don't know if they call him that in his personal life as well. Also, of course, Slade were from... Wolverhampton, although um, Noddy Holder, the singer, I think is actually from Walsall, and Robert Plant, who later in Led Zeppelin, his first bands were in Wolverhampton, not particularly successful mid-60s. So, but I think I think at the very least, Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders, who I've now said twice, could have could have been snapped up there. Our weekly newsletter, that, uh, The Howl, picked up on, on something that was mentioned on Twitter by uh, Nick Murphy, which is there's a stall on Walthamstow Market, Walthamstow in, in North East London, where someone is selling a load of Carlisle United bath mats. There's a photo of them on hangers. Whether it's an overstock in the Carlisle Club shop has somehow found their way like 300 miles south to Walthamstow. So maybe it's a sort of supply and demand or maybe just some initiative by the stallholder. You know, he's taken a gamble like like Mike Ashley um, <laughs> Mike Ashley famously used to do. And look where that's ended up. Also, I think we should mention, I found a great, great YouTube channel last week by someone called The Heavy Roller. Heavy roll all words all together. Whereas loads of footage of 1950s and early 60s football, a lot of it from the BBC and pretty much the day period. I had no idea they'd covered so much football. And a lot often as part of other sports programs, I think mostly cup ties rather than league games. But to my great surprise, I was able to watch 10 minute highlights of Tooting and Mitchum beating Bournemouth in the FA Cup. 1958-59, which is two teams run where they lost to Forest in the third round. Commentary by Cliff Mitchell-Moore, who at the time was best known for being a, a serious news presenter. And I, I quite often with a lot of the, the footage I've seen so far, there's a lot of that sort of, that's a marvellous shot. It's, it's a goal. Yes, yes, it's a goal. That sort of stuff. So not, not quite the sort of bad Barry Davis, John Motson level, I don't think. But worth checking out anyway. And we should also say, we, we talked about Jimmy Greaves um, passing away last time. And now another member of England's 1966 World Cup squad has died, Roger Hunt. I remember seeing a TV item about the 66 team around the time of the 86 World Cup, I think, when there was much less generally said about those, about 66. And Roger Hunt went up to his loft where he had like a trunk with some old football jerseys. And he joked about how he'd struggle to fit into the, any of the shirts now. And he just seemed like a nice kind of normal person, really. He stayed out of football after he retired. He went to the the family road haul, road haulage business, so he didn't really talk like an old footballer, if you know what I mean, because yeah, I guess he just had a, a regular life after leaving football. I loved seeing a clip of him getting into one of the family haulage dark green truck. It was a, a lovely thing, and I couldn't help thinking, I wonder if they're still going now, and I, will they be doing okay at the moment? Have they got enough drivers now? Yeah. Well, it just hard the size of the packaging, Dan. <laughs> 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 I, I enjoyed the YouTube channel because you, you sent me that and I, I watched a brilliant news report about the, the Sheffield Wednesday 3, the 1964 
match fixing or betting scandal and was quite taken aback. I'd never seen Peter Swan before. I just read about this case and he was a striking looking fellow, wasn't he? I thought he looked halfway between a, a Cray and Elvis or something. Yeah, he had fantastic hair. I mean, it, it's a great quiff. That's well worth checking out. That That's worth the price alone, even though it won't cost you anything. Is to it's surprising that he could hit the ball with, with that quiff. Yeah. But he could maintain his quiff while heading the ball. He could propel it further. Yeah, because I, I watched on that a really good uh, interview with Bobby Smith. He seemed to be the man that Steve McLaren had copied his hairstyle off. <laughs> the sort of the, the classic bus driver, the northern bus driver haircut with Bobby Smith. <laughs> Bobby Smith. Uh... <laughs> Issue 414 of When Saturday Comes is out now. Andy, tell us about some of the items in this issue. Uh, yeah, well, the match of the month uh, this month is Oldham v Hartlepool, with emphasis on Oldham's uh, problems, which have included winding up orders and staff not being paid on time several times and transfer embargoes, all of which has left them in the, the relegation area in League Two. And their, their owner, um, who's Abdallah Lemsagem, Lemsagem, who's a former agent who's based in the UAE, um, his brother is the sporting director and has been involved in evidently been involved in signing players. There have been protests during the games and there were some outside the ground before this game, as our writer Mike Wally mentions. But there are three distinct uh, fan groups involved in, in the protests. They now seem to have joined forces for, for the match day protests. And uh, they could well be the first former Premier League team to drop down into non-league. I mean, it's not looking very good for them at the moment. We've got an extract from a new anthology of, of women football writers, which is called Football She Wrote. And this one, written by um, Ali Rampling, is about uh, Lowestoft ladies who won the Women's FA Cup in 1982. And one of the the best um, teams at the time, in the, in the before there was a National League, had some England players then. But they had to disband shortly after winning the Cup because teams were dropping out of their league, which is called the Southeast Regional League. And other leagues further away didn't want to take them on as Lowestoft was supposedly too far for the teams to travel. Of course, Lowestoft themselves, the, the teams who are playing with it would only have to go there once a season, whereas Lowestoft have had to have travelled for every other game. So it didn't seem like that much of a, a hardship. So unfortunately, a year after winning the Cup, they had to to disband. We've got a piece by Nick Fuller about the gradual disappearance of the utility player. He mentions that there's a new mural at Ipswich featuring one player that neutrals might not know so which is Mick Stockwell, who played 600 games for Ipswich in almost every position except goalkeeper. And as, of course, as clubs can use more subs now, they can bring on specialist players for pretty much whichever position needs covering. So there's less need, I suppose, for players who can play in several positions. Though they, can't, there are, they do still exist low down the leagues, of course. There are still 21st century Alan Harpers. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> also, for the regular object lesson feature, Drew Whitworth, uh, written about his Queen's Park scarf, which he bought after going to a game of those at Hamden in, in 2016. Drew's a Brighton fan, but he'd lost his Brighton scarf and the winter was, was on, so he started wearing this black and white uh, Queen's Park scarf, and which he now wears to games as neutral. And as he says, quote from the article, wearing colours different from everyone else at games has a peculiar effect, like a chameleon in reverse. By being different, I vanish into the background. I can watch the match unfold, be part of it, yet not, and at the end, disappear. And that's what we all want, I think. The Football She Wrote book looks excellent, and I think it's in the When Saturday Comes shop, isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah. I was really pleased that the cover designer had remembered the all-important comma, because Murder She Wrote has a comma, and that's often forgotten, which does irk me. So, well done <laughs> I don't like there. to think of you being irked. <laughs> irked by a comma, <laughs> or, a, or a lack of. Well, that's probably a probably comma irkage. 
It's probably, <laughs> probably actually a com- complaint. <laughs> I've been there, actually, comma, Rurkage, in, in, in <laughs> County Dundalk. What's your column about this month, Harry? Well, it's about, I was I was at a game um, a few weeks ago, and a man came up, and he, he oh, not about, about a month ago, it must have been, and a man came up, and he said, oh, you won't remember me, I'm Mark Outerside. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't. And he said, I scored an own goal for Whitley Bay. Um, and and, it, and it, it, it was in the far corner. And I, could, I still couldn't remember it. But then he quoted verbatim how I described his own goal. Because <laughs> I'd said that you know, when a player scores an own goal, you, always, you can always work out what he was trying to do. And in this case, it was obvious that Mark Outerside was trying to head it into the top left-hand corner of the goal. Um, so he's much amused by that. Anyway, luckily he saw the funny side. Um, he's also he's also one of those players who um, Mark Outside. He's a, he he was one of those players who often, if you put him into Google, he crops up on Sunderland fan websites because he only he played a single game for Sunderland under Laurie Menemy before he was sold to Darlington. So he's one of those players who only played one game, which seems a bit un, bit, a bit unfair. That and the own goal in the far corner. Um, so he, so he's now, he really say he was a very nice chap, and uh, now. A, a headmaster of a primary school, I think. Um, but anyway, so my column's about own goals and uh, the fact that fans always think of them as funny, aren't they? They're one of those things like match officials falling over and players getting hit in the groin by the ball that we always think are amusing. And there are sort of all sorts of different types. I think there's a kind of, I think I described one, there's, there's a sort of Pyrrhic own goal where the defender knows that the forward's behind him and will score unless he puts the ball in. So he puts the ball in the net himself, which, you know, uh, you know, it sort of seems a strange thing to do. But then if it, if it, you know, if you thought that it would stop Bebeto doing his rocking the baby goal celebration, you might be tempted to put it in your own net instead, might you? Um, one of the things that I didn't mention in it, because I thought Andy might cut it out, is that it's the way that some players, their career becomes defined. If you score a terrible, uh, you know, horrendous own goal, oh, your I know career becomes... Be. And you know who this is going to be about, Andy, which is Sandy Brown, who, who scored a famous own goal for Everton uh, in the Merseyside derby in 1969. And that is literally, if you put his name into Google, that is the first thing that comes up. He played 200 games for Everton and won the league title. They won the league that year, Richie. So my, my view on it is always to say I'm quite stoical about it. I'd happily exchange a wacky on goal and defeat to Liverpool for winning the league. Very good. I think I think I would as well, actually. I'll take you on that. Um, but at the, end of, at the end of that, when he gets the goal, I can't remember the commentator, it might be David Coleman, I think. He says, he must wish the ground would swallow him up which was a phrase you heard quite a lot in those days on commentary. There was a lot of ground. People don't say it quite so much now. But yes, yeah, so that's what it's about. Own goals and uh, mark out aside. Yeah, there, are, there are no circumstances really in which you would wish the ground would swallow you up, are there? I mean, it would be terrible. I mean, it's bad enough you've just scored an own goal. I mean, you, you want to recover from that. You don't also want to be swallowed up by the ground. No, well, it was one of the the weird thing is now you mention that because one of, that was one of the great fears of childhood. You were always being warned about quicksand. Yeah. Weren't you always being warned about quicksand? And if you were, if you got into quicksand, you weren't supposed to wriggle about. You were supposed to remain still while you sank into the quicksand. And it was always a, that was always a great terror of childhood. It was always happening to the famous five. One of them was always getting stuck in quicksand, and they would feel it coming up to the level of. So they were being the ground was swallowing them up, but it wasn't a good thing. Even if George from the famous five had scored an own goal, still quicksand. She wouldn't have opted for it. Jackpot tickets, pound a goal, draw it half time, five hundred pound prize draw. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Your hats and scarves and pin badges. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges, hats, scarves. 
Hats and scarves and pin badges. Program. 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 Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot ticket, pound a go, draw at half time, 500 pounds, yours to take on tonight. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove, here we go. Batman petrol spore, Wayne Faraday, attitudes to the offside rule in French New Wave cinema, and it's landed on point deductions. Oh, what in God's name does that bring to mind, Harry? Well, no, I think it, what you think it'll bring to mind, Dan, is probably uh, <laughs> mouldering pies and curling sandwiches at Ewood Park. But for me, it doesn't. It brings to mind Tinsley Lindley. Uh, a name that's easier to write down than it is to say. Um, he was a, a famous uh, Victorian footballer who um, played for Nottingham Forest as a teenager at the age of 16. He scored a he scored a hat-trick on his debut and went on in that season. I think Nottingham Forest, it was, a pre, it was the pre-league uh, days. He scored 85 goals at the age of 16 for Nottingham Forest. Uh, remarkably, then played for England, scored 14 goals in 13 appearances for England and all the more remarkable because he played in brogues rather than football boots because he said he could <laughs> run faster in them. Well, Tinsley Lindley was involved. Uh, he played for Nottingham Forest, as I say, but he, Notts County was short of players in the 1889-90 season and they borrowed him for a couple of games, including a match against Aston Villa. But of course, he wasn't registered for them. He wasn't eligible to play for them. And so the Football League deducted Notts County were deducted a point and fined five pounds. But Tinsley Lindley wasn't finished then because he'd been to Cambridge <laughs> University where he studied law and he'd become a barrister. And so he appealed on behalf of Notts County against this punishment. And at a meeting of the Football League, he put the case saying that by deducting a point and fining them, they were effectively punishing Notts County twice for the same offence. And the Football League listened to his eloquent discourse on the subject of law and after they'd heard it they decided to deduct two points and find them 30 pounds instead <laughs> so that was so that was the effect of tinsley lindley also thinking as well of um billy meredith or billy meredith perhaps we should say um, he was involved in a famous case where he tried to he was playing for manchester city and it was alleged that he tried to bribe an opposition player. This was sort of 1909, 1910. He thought that the club would kind of stand by him, and they didn't. So Billy Meredith then revealed to the Football League that Manchester City had been making illegal payments to their players. And the Football League's response to this was quite a strange punishment. They ordered Manchester City to auction off their entire first-team squad, including Billy Meredith. And so that the whole team were auctioned off. Um, and Billy Meredith, of course, was bought by Manchester United, where he went on to be massively successful. And this was not the only time that the FA ordered the selling off of squads. It also happened to Leeds City, um, famously fa- founded in 1904 and forced to disband in 1919 after, again, a, a disgruntled player, Charlie Copeland, who had he was unhappy with his wages and basically what he wanted he wanted to be paid more and the club refused to pay him more and so he said if they didn't pay him more he would reveal to the football league 
that Leeds City had been making payments to players during World War One, which was uh, which was illegal. The Leeds the City decided to call his bluff, um, and so he did. He went to the Football League and told them about these illegal payments. Leeds City didn't seem to take it very seriously at all, and so in the end they were they were kicked out of the Football League and effectively disbanded. John McKenna, the Football League chairman, said. The authorities of the game intend to keep it absolutely clean. We will have no nonsense. <laughs> Very much, the, the, and so sixteen members. And so after the disbanding of the club, sixteen members of the Leeds squad were auctioned off at the Metropole Hotel in Leeds. That was on October the nineteenth, nineteen nineteen. And Lincoln City did quite well out of it. They managed to they managed to buy three players for a combined total of eight hundred and fifty pounds. I'd like to see this. I'd like to see this sort of punishment introduce more i think it'd be good wouldn't it instead of deducting 30 points just make them sell the whole team at auction <laughs> think of the excitement on ebay they could do it couldn't they or other auction sites probably they could do that it sounds like a bit of bbc daytime series waiting to happen to be honest it does doesn't it yes buy you buy a footballer <laughs> half backs under the hammer awesome that, that, yeah exactly you could get buy one instead of using him as a footballer you could just get him to do your gardening or something <laughs> like that Anyway, so those are two things that I've thought of, Dan. And then the other ones, of course, Bernard Tappy and Marseille uh, in the 1990s, they they also were involved in a whole series of scams and schemes. But in 1993, when they won the European Cup, I think Bernard Tappy, in some ways, like a kind of Gallic Don Revy, he probably had a team there that could have won everything without him fiddling around. But he seemed, he just, he never quite trusted it. And so in 1993, before the European Cup, he bribed the Valenciennes, some of the Valenciennes players in a league game to sort of, as one of the players said, to lift their foot uh, in the hope that then, then Marseille wouldn't have to, you know, would win the league title, win the French league title without having to put too much effort in. And some of the players were paid. And the, the thing, that the detail of it that I remembered, which I was, I was quite pleased that it turned out to be true, was that a guy called Christophe Robert, he was offered cash and his wife picked it up in a bag in a car, from someone in a car park. And then it was later discovered by police buried in his mother-in-law's garden. <laughs> and obviously they were stri- they were stripped of their French league title after this was all um, this was all revealed. And Arsene Wenger, who was at Monaco at the time, said that he he didn't really want to talk too much about it because the French football during that era was gangrenous. <laughs> Well, there we are. That, that doesn't even just yeah, that's just without uh, Chris Waddle and uh, Glenn Hoddle singing. <laughs> Going back a couple of stories, was Billy Meredith toothpick? He was the he was the toothpick man. Yes, he always play, he always chewed a toothpick while he was playing. I think there was I remember something about that. In when Saturday comes very early on, Andy, there was something about that. There's, the thing I remember about him also was that when he was playing, people used to shout Meredith were in as he was running along because there were two comedians at the time who used to play bailiffs on stage, and the, the whole thing was trying breaking into a house, and one of them was called Meredith. So the other one, when he managed to get in through the window on the stage, he'd shout, Meredith, we're in. And that was their sort of catchphrase. So people started to shout it at Billy Meredith as well. So he must have loved it. I bet he did. I bet he really enjoyed that. It's like people shouting, I don't believe it, at Richard Wilson. Yes. <laughs> and Andy points deductions? Well, I, I should say first, there's the one caused by a, a, a famous incident, though the points deduction itself was ultimately had no effect on the clubs. November 1990, 
Arsenal's um, 1-0 win at Old Trafford in the league game. Nigel Winterman lunges in on Dennis Irwin as a, a mass bundle. I was going to say a mass stramash, but I wasn't confident of, of being able to say that. Though I have, I have now just said it. <laughs> <laughs> Both clubs were fined. Arsenal lost two points. United lost one. Arsenal was second at the time, but they were eight points behind Liverpool. But they did go on to win the league. United finished sixth, but did win the European Cup in this cup. And the scrap was probably the start of the big Arsenal-Man United rivalry of, of the 90s of various incidents subsequently, you know, um, most of which I think to neutrals were extremely tedious. <laughs> but in the in the pre-social media days, in the very early days of social media, preoccupied a lot of the time of Arsenal-Man United fans slagging each other off. And of course, also I think there was a genuine dislike between Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger, I think, though they seemed to patch it up before Ferguson retired. There's also a WC cover in which there's a photo of the row made to look as if they're arguing technical terms over the EU's uh, place in Europe, and uh, ironically, and and whether or not we should adopt the euro and so on. The, one of the first big points deduction scandals I remember reading about you was the Toto Nero scandal in Italy in 1980, where several players involved in match-fixing organised by gamblers, the, the Toto being the Italian uh, um, sort of pools, I think. And there are a few international players caught up, the best known being Paolo Rossi, who was Italy's centre-forward at the time, who was then with Perugia, and he was initially bound for three years, he was cut to two, and he came back in time to make a, a decisive contribution to Italy winning the World Cup in uh, in 1982. And Rossi had supposedly been told that a Perugia game was going to be fixed. And he said, I don't care what happens, was quoted as saying, I don't care what happens as long as I score a couple of goals. And Perugia drew to all and he scored twice. So several clubs in the top two divisions had points deducted for the following season as a consequence, including Perugia, who went down, they would have gone down anyway because they, they were several points adrift. And AC Milan and Lazio were directly relegated for their um, involvement. Unfortunately, of course, that put paid to match fixing in Italy. Lessons were learned, <laughs> and there are even some years now it doesn't happen at all. <laughs> not, not, not that we can really point the finger about corruption in other countries at the moment, A eh, listeners. <laughs> um, in England, there was a, a sudden clampdown. There was the mysterious clampdown of 1967-68, where Peterborough had 19 points deducted at the end of that season, which specifically enough to relegate them from Division Three for irregular bonuses, making irregular bonus payments to the players. And um, there was a similar investigation to Port Vale the same year. It also done various illegal payments, bonuses, and so on. But they were temporarily, as it turned out, actually expelled from the league because they were in, already in Division Four, so they couldn't be demoted any further without actually being kicked out. But they were reinstated by a vote of the other league clubs that summer. So when Stanley Matthews was manager, I don't think he was directly implicated in the the bonus points, but he, he sort of quit by uh, by the end of that. It seems odd, looking at it now, that there was this big clamp down that year and then really nothing more. It wasn't as if illegal payments were unknown before then. And as we mentioned before, of course, in the days of the, the, the maximum wage pre-1961, there were lots of stories of players moving or wanting to move because the clubs they were joining would make, you know, off the books of cash payments. But it did look as if the league were making a, a trying to make a point about oh, they the, the found out about these a, a couple of instances and, and the, these clubs were sort of to, to discourage the others. But whether or not that actually worked, I don't know. There were loads of points deductions. There used to be a lot in, I, I, I say, in the Northern League. Actually, one club in particular, Evenwood Town, had points uh, deducted seven times between 1950-51 and 2004-05, usually for fielding unregistered players, which I guess does happen a lot in non-league. But they're only ever fined between two and four points. And this was in the league either with no relegation um, when they're in the one division or later on when they're in the second division where there was no automatic relegation below that. Though after their last points deduction, they then they then up sticks completely to Spennymoor, 
um, spending more. The previous club had just United had just folded, uh, and then spending more Town started up, which had had been uh, even with Town previously, and have since gone to do very well. The only instance of a club failing to be promoted as as a result of a points deduction was Leeds uh, League One two thousand two thousand seven eight. They got fifteen point deduction for leaving administration without having a, a, a CVA, credit voluntary agreement, and they had done unpaid debts for years since the big collapse under Peter Ridsdale. And the, their owner at the time, Cudley Ken Bates, had, had reduced the debts, but they were still in trouble. But without that point deduction, they would have got automatic promotion as it was. Um, they got to the playoff final in League One, but they um, they lost to Doncaster. It was only in 2003, actually, that automatic 10-point deductions had been imposed for clubs going to administration. The, the single biggest impact this had was a, a calamitous or a very confusing season the following 2008-9 in League Two, where they were with mayhem. There were four clubs that had points deducted that season. A lot of this was to do with really the long-term effects of the collapse of ITV Digital, the, the channel that the league had to deal with to broadcast live games a few years earlier. It had gone under, where some games were officially said to have had viewing figures of zero, I think. <laughs> Several clubs' finances were, were, were badly screwed for quite a while afterwards. And Luton, who'd had points take, uh, 10 points taken off the previous season for entering administration and lost, um, which had taken down from League One, that had another 10 taken off for regular payments to agents, which had been investigated initially ironically because their manager Mike Newell complained about having to deal with, with certain agents. Then they had another 20 taken off for failing to agree one of those CVAs with creditors for coming out of administration so unsurprisingly they were relegated into non-league and in the same division Bournemouth and Rotherham both had 17 points deducted each for, com- for not coming out of administration and during the season Darlington lost 10 points for going into administration so Darlington and Rotherham would both have made the playoffs um, without those without those points deductions. It's a lot of asterisks underneath a lot of league tables at the end of the season, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it has been said as well. I, mean, I can understand that you do need to take some punitive measures against clubs, but obviously... Very often, it'll only make a club situation worse if they if they're getting if they're dropping down the division or if they're dropping into non-league. The owners who've caused the, the damage are probably left. The new owners, in some cases, might be connected to a fans group have taken over, um, and and the club is still is still being deducted points that are likely to you know push them further down the league. But obviously, something has to be done. And in the old days, as I mentioned, Evenwood Town, then the kind of fielding and registered players thing. Obviously, the leagues and it used to happen in non-league a lot as well just did these kind of token points deductions that really had no had no consequence. It's only really been in recent years that they've, they've really been, apart from the case of Peter, I suppose, that they've been really uh, significant. Yeah, on the on the, the topic of Toto Nero, there, were, there was a, a kind of comedic element to that because the, the two men who were behind most of it um, were these two Romans called Cruciano and Trinca. One was a greengrocer and one had a restaurant. And they paid bribes to various players, but somehow... The, their attempts to fix matches never quite worked out um, how they wanted. So instead of making money, they actually lost lots and lots of money. I think they were about a billion lira in debt. And so what they did was they hired an attorney um, with a view to suing the players to get their money back. It was a sort of breach of contract. And that was that was how the whole thing started <laughs> off with these two slightly comedic figures try, threatening to sue people who they'd bribed to fix matches which hadn't been fixed in the way they wanted. It seems quite an extraordinary... Never mind Tinsley Lindley. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary thing. And another thing is that there's only one team, I think, in Football League history that's actually been awarded points, um, which was Scunthorpe in 73-74 when Exeter called off a game... Um, because they had nine players injured or unwell. And 
And so the league actually awarded victory to Scunthorpe. And I think that I'm pretty sure that's the only time that's ever happened in the whole history of the Football League that someone's been given points rather than having them taken away. What about other punishments available to the authorities? Do, do any of those come to mind for either of you? Well, there's Man United uh, to play the return leg of a cup winner's cup tie in 77 against St Etienne. Rather than being played in Manchester, it's played in Plymouth because there had been some fighting at the first leg in France. So the second leg had to be played a certain distance from Manchester. I'm not sure if it was that game or a, a later game because Liverpool played in Cincinnati in the previous uh, or a, a previous game. Liverpool had played in Cincinnati in, uh, the season before. But I do remember there was one game involving English fans. Where it was reported that Cincinnati fans had been pelting them with bread. It was officially these kind of baguettes, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> for example, parabola through the air it seemed very French, you know, strings of onions or snails instead. You know. A baguette would do you a nasty injury, though, wouldn't it? It's not like a bread roll, is it? It's not like a bap. <laughs> having a bap thrown at you, having a, I mean, a, a, or a flute perhaps. Thrown I wonder at if you. they buttered them first as well. Would that make it worse? I mean, you'd be more kind of greasy, wouldn't you? You get covered in <laughs> grease. A bagel would hurt. Some of those things can fly, and they're very heavy, aren't they? Yeah. They do look like they've been designed as a weapon, actually. You could, you could whirl it round on your finger and then throw it, couldn't you? Like a, like one of those sort of thing that kung fu, they would have been on Kung Fu. They would have found those Shaolin monks. They did, that's the sort of thing they would have thrown at people. I tell you, it wouldn't have been so effective. It would be gluten-free bread. That would probably dis- disintegrate in the air. <laughs> you'd have to toast it first, but then you'd have to take a toaster into the ground. No, it'd be yeah, very too, way too much faffing about <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Right, well, I've gone for Vidi Vidi Videoton by Clementina Maga and the Videoton Big Band. This was released in 1985 when Videoton, who are from... I made a note to look up the pronunciation of this, of this, of this um, name and, and forgot to do it. Sekesh Fervar. In Hungary, they got to the UEFA Cup final. They beat Man United on penalties in the quarterfinals. Lost to Real Madrid in the final. They lost 3-0 at home in the first leg final. Won 1-0 in the Bernabeu. They can presumably Real were in kind of second gear by then. But these were the days when small to medium East European teams could make pro- significant progress in Europe, could get to European finals. And in the semi-finals, Vidyaton had won on away goals against Zaljeznica of Sarajevo in what was then Yugoslavia. Only just because they got a late, a late away goal that took them through to the final. As the name suggested, they were owned by an electronics company um, who did put some money into the club. But obviously, um, nothing like the kind of money that some Eastern European clubs are now funded with. Sharif uh, Taraspol from Moldova recently beat Real Madrid in the Champions League. Have what we might, I think, we can safely call a controversially wealthy owners. Um, Vidyaton still around in the Hungarian first division now, now called Fervar FC. And they have been champions. At the time of the UEFA Cup final, they'd never won a major trophy, so they could have joined the shortlist of clubs who'd won a major European trophy before winning a domestic trophy. Who, you're wondering, is on that list? Well, I'll tell you, it's Bayer Leverkusen and Real Zaragoza. But Fulham could have joined them if they'd beaten Atletico Madrid in their first uh, in that Euro- Europa League final in, uh, in 2010. In Borough's case, I'm counting the League Cup as a major trophy, which, of course, you'd, you'd won you a major are. trophy before getting to, to your UEFA Cup final. Anyway, mm. vidi vidi video time. 
And Harry, what's your own choice this time? Well, there was a man from Carnarvon called Barry Hughes um, down, and he uh, he played most of his professional football actually in Holland um, for for Alkmaar. Uh, married a Dutch TV personality, became a coach in Holland, and he was coach of Go Ahead Eagles. And he was actually the man who's credited in the 70s, he's the man who's credited with adding Eagles to Go Ahead. Um, Deventer, I think it's pronounced, isn't it? Um, and, and Barry, he's being a Welshman, he was a bit of a singer. And he released a, a few records, including when he was manager of Sparta Rotterdam in 1981, he, he launched, he, he recorded a song called On My Head I Want a Wall-to-Wall Carpet. <laughs> Um, because he was a reference to his baldness. Um, but sadly, that isn't on 45 football. So in, in honour of uh, in honor of Barry Hughes, I've gone for um, another a song by Pepe Fernandez, who was the Uruguayan striker at Go-Ahead Eagles while Barry Hughes was manager in the sort of 69-71. Um, and uh, and he was a, Pepe Fernandez was a Uruguayan, but he didn't seem to have ever played in Uruguay. He started his career in Ecuador, and then he went and played in the... In the uh, National Soccer League, North American Soccer League for various players, San Diego Toros, Kansas City Spurs, Seattle Sounders, Tacoma Ties. Also played for the California Clippers, who were a team who kind of opted out of the the North American Soccer League. And they only played friendly matches, including against foreign opponents mainly, and including three matches against Dynamo Kiev in 1969, in which Pepe Fernandez played. But anyway, so this is Pepe Fernandez, and it's called uh, Mi Familias. And uh, while we listen to it, we can think of, if only we could hear Barry Hughes singing, On My Head I Want a Wall-to-Wall Carpet. <laughs> My own choice this time is Coup Algeria 65 by Rabah Deriza. I wanted to stay on the continent of Africa after my Mozambican John last time. This record commemorates the 1965 Cup final won by MS Saida. Quite like the idea of recording a song after the Cup final. I don't know what sort of what would happen if we did that here. And I wanted also to reflect my love for the great philosopher and goalkeeper. Dave Besant, no, Albert Camus, of course, was a French Algerian. Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I was joined by Laurie Dunsire from the Heart of Midlothian podcast, Scarves Around the Funnel. Oh, Scarves Around the Funnel. So that started three years ago. At the time, there was a bit of a gap in the market <laughs> for, for a weekly Hearts podcast. 
as you've probably found, not just with hearts, but with lots of things, football, sport, other things, podcasts are all over the place now because yeah. during the pandemic, everyone realized you could you could Zoom and you could Skype and you could record it and hey presto, podcasts. But at the time, there weren't so many about. So myself and Mark Donaldson, so I'm the commentator for Hearts TV and Mark used to be many years ago and he's now a big shot over in the states commenting for espn but you know we're in touch with one another and we decided we could do a sort of across the pond podcast with him in the in america and myself here in scotland and we'd review the games and it kind of grew from there and from us just chatting about the games reminiscing we've had a few guests on and that's turned into players coming on so we've had the hearts manager robbie nielsen on a couple of times captain craig gordon has been on lots of players from the past mark de Vries, john cahoon uh we've had one of the hearts women's players on very recently which was good and a former hearts cup winner in ryan mcgowan who's an australian international at the moment he has been on so many times that we've now made him a regular so there's now three of us that do the podcast uh, but it does make me feel like the little fish now because i've got an international footballer and former cup winner we've got the espn commentator over in the states and me who does Hearts commentary on the side. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us about the name which comes from a Hearts song. <laughs> yeah, if you're not a Hearts fan, it means absolutely nothing. And you'd be wondering why on earth a football podcast is called Scarves Around the Funnel. But it comes from uh, Hearts' European song. And because Hearts have been so terrible for the past few years, opposition fans probably haven't heard us singing it very much because we generally sung it either when we're playing in Europe or when we're doing well because, well, European football's on the way. There's a lot of references to travelling, going afloat on some big boat and tying our scarves around the funnel is the line. Sung to the um, to the tune of My Way. That's, that's where it comes from. In a world of three-word chants and things, it's an incredibly almost complex and brilliant chant. I was quite taken aback when I first heard it, I have to say. Whoever came up with that and then made it stick because you do get good chants on message boards and things that never stick i'm always amazed by when it's sung in unison which it should be at the moment with the way you're doing it's a it's a hats off to whoever invented it is what i'm trying to say yeah it's one of those where it's got a lot of it's got got a lot of good verses um and there's parts of it that there's debate over and some people sing one thing and some people sing another it's in reference to the players that hearts uh that we'll be seeing i think the line that most people know is um we have no cares for other players like rossi boniek or tardelli <laughs> but you know even for me I, I know the names but they're not players that, that i tended to see so I, I can't remember what the other there's a few different variations of that now because for younger fans it doesn't mean anything but you're right it's a very creative song and you don't get many of those that stick these mm. days so so that brings us to your own early days as a Hearts fan why are they your team and when did you first start to go to Tynecastle? Like many people it's probably a similar story in terms of it's a family thing comes from my dad who's from Edinburgh grew up as a Hearts fan I suppose one of the interesting things about about Hearts and Hearts and Hibs and this applies to a few other cities as well happens in Liverpool with Everton and and, uh, Liverpool lots of families it's intertwined with what teams they support between the two rivals. So obviously Hearts and, and Hibs are two city rivals in Edinburgh. But back in the 50s when my dad was 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 a youngster, you wouldn't just go to see 
hearts and then hearts away there wasn't you know travel wasn't so easy so going to away games wasn't as big a thing so if hearts were away from home a lot of hearts fans would go to easter road and watch whoever hibs were playing you know they wouldn't necessarily support hibs or necessarily support the other team but they would go because it was a game of football and vice versa when hibs were away from home a lot of hibs fans would just go to Tynecastle. so my grandfather was actually a hibs fan and he took my dad to easter road but also the other weeks took him to Tynecastle because they wouldn't go to away games and he, he just fancied Tynecastle more I mean this is the heyday of Hearts and Hibs this is probably the golden era for both clubs back then so it wasn't that one one of the sides was better than the other especially uh, but yeah he supported Hearts and by the time I became interested in football in the 90s it was a bit more partisan back then you wouldn't be going to see your opposition <laughs> on alternate weeks so I took after him and I was very lucky in terms of when I started supporting Hearts because was maybe 96 97 I started supporting them took an interest and I didn't go to a game until 97 and in the first season I started going to games we won a cup and that was the first time we'd won a trophy for 36 years um so I think my dad thought I was uh, maybe took things for granted a little bit tell me he'd been waiting for over three decades to see that and I come along and one year in we've won a Scottish Cup so I was I was lucky in that sense about when I started supporting them. What about then the worst of times in your supporting life with Hearts? You know from the outside people would probably think you'd automatically talk about 2013-2014 when the, the club went into administration and the very future of the club was in doubt and in many ways that is I suppose the worst of times in the maybe quarter of a century or so that I've been supporting the club. But there was certainly a positive reaction at that time. I think it brought a lot of fans together, a call to arms, um, for want of a better phrase, and everyone sort of chipped in in terms of literally financially. Despite the fact we started that season with a team of basically team of kids, we started with a minus 15 point deduction, you know, relegation was almost inevitable we did give a give it a fight but we were always going to be you know it was 95 sure that we'd go down with the resources we had and fighting a, 19, a minus 15 point starting but everyone sort of banded together so despite the fact we were going on huge runs of losses or or at least runs without wins everyone tried to kind of keep the spirits up and it was a sense of solidarity about it and then we obviously thankfully managed to see um see it through and thanks to Anne Budge and a lot of other people the club was saved and we bounced back stronger uh, it, in some ways recent seasons have been worse uh, you know maybe just before the pandemic we'd been on a bit of a slide probably because there was no excuse you know and when we were in that financial turmoil you know everyone I think said well you know we've just got to support these you know we've got 18 19 year olds now our first choice because we've got no option but we were spending we were spending third highest in the division and out of the 12 teams we were bottom and there's a lot of I won't get into the controversy about how the season ended because we'd need about four podcasts to get into the finer details of that but we were bottom of the table when the pandemic hit and we ended up being demoted to the to the division below so that's certainly not good enough so there have been some hard times but you'll probably move on to the best of times. And I, I do feel as a Hearts fan, we've been fortunate, certainly in my time, that there've been more more good times than bad. So give us the best of those then. <laughs> well, I mean, the first season, as I mentioned, 1998, 
was always was a good place to start. I mean, I was very young, just finishing primary school, so I don't think I fully appreciated it then. I'd only been to a handful of games, I hadn't really seen the worst of times yet. So I think, although for Hearts fans of a certain age, 1998 is seen as the pinnacle. It's the, the big one. It ended that huge run when they felt like we'd never win a trophy. If you're my, if you're kind of maybe early to mid-30s or younger, it doesn't have the same impact. It was a glorious occasion, a glorious day, and a glorious achievement, but we hadn't we hadn't had the, the, the difficult times beforehand. So I think um, we had 2006 where we won the Cup and we, we finished second. 2012 was a big one. I think if you're you're my age, as I say, early to mid thirties or younger, twenty twelve, when we put five goals past our rivals in a cup final, uh, in what is deemed the biggest Edinburgh derby of all time to win the Scottish Cup, it's always going to be up there. So I think that has to be up there. And I think coming back from the hard times, you know, when I said twenty thirteen fourteen, we were in administration. The future of the club was in doubt. I think after that, there was a the next season where we kind of walked the championship and got promoted, we came back up. There's a real feel-good factor. And I think people appreciated it more because I guess the club had almost kind of been taken out of our grasp completely. So, so yeah, lots of positive times. Hard to pick just one. Mm, and one recently with, with the, the owner and Budge handing over full ownership of the club to the supporters. That's an incredible moment. It must be some feeling for you all. Yeah, that's a good one. Should have mentioned that. Yeah, end of, I think it was 30th of August, uh, so just over, what, about five weeks ago or so now, the day that uh, Hearts officially became fan-owned and became the biggest fan-owned football club in the UK. There's over 8,000 members that kind of make that happen, that pay money in every month. So that was quite an emotional and significant achievement, of course. And I think given our past, because you know, for those that don't know Hearts' recent history, we, we were run by... Vladimir Romanov, uh, a Lithuanian slash Russian, with um, who who gave us some glorious times and some great players, but ultimately almost took us under when his kind of empire fell apart around him. And I think one of the big things with that with that period was it showed that one person or a group of people, a group of individuals, maybe with complete control over the club, your the fans' control is very limited. So I think one big thing with the change of ownership, it, it doesn't mean, you know, I think we've seen it with the likes of Ebb's fleet when they tried to do this fan ownership when the fans actually got to vote on managers and signings and such like, but it's not, it's nothing like that. There will be a board, there'll be management of the club. It won't lead to supporters having, having influence on those kind of decisions, but the four big issues that this means that the fans always have a say on. So the club can't sell the shares without the fans voting and, and putting that through. They can't move from our stadium, Tyne Castle. Um, they can't change the club colours. I know some clubs have had this problem with owners in the past. And uh, they can't change the name without the permission of the supporters. So I think the whole idea is it protects the club's, for, the club's future and the kind of foundation of the club. But there will still be people, of course, running the club. It will not be um, a crazy vote on get rid of the manager, vote now or anything like that. A word on Tynecastle then, because even as someone that goes 
regularly to Hibs as I live near the ground with my, my daughter, I'll Shocking. freely admit that <laughs> that a full Tyne Castle when when Hearts fans are in a good mood, you say the loudest ground in Scotland, or what? You know what makes it special if that is so? It's very steep. I mean, if we're going to talk, you know, actual specifics and yeah, structural yeah. side of it, the way it's it's it is a very steep, and you're very close to the pitch. Which, if you've not been to Tyne Castle, you know, it's kind of one of these where if you're up the back of some of the stands um, and you're walking down, you don't want to walk too fast. You kind of get a little bit of a vertigo feeling because it is very steep. I think it's as steep as you can have it in the UK. Uh, Someone once told me that. Don't ask me the finer details, but in terms of um, architecture or structural design or something, you can't actually have it any steeper than that when it comes to a football stadium. So it means the fans are right on top of the pitch. Um, It does help that we we do have decent crowds, uh, obviously, pandemic aside uh, it holds 20,000 and we do tend to get 16 17,000 even for maybe the smaller games and usually full if it's Rangers Celtic Hibs or maybe Aberdeen which means that always generates a good atmosphere uh, and uh, it's just one of these famous old grounds you would say um, I think Scotland has a few good good stadiums and so does England but Tynecastle is one of the special ones and I think it shows when most people vote it as their favourite away day Maybe more recently, that's because everyone got a win. Not not the last two years, but for a period, it was a place where teams would come and get results. Uh, thankfully, we're getting back to it being a bit more of a fortress. Um, so it's just a very passionate place. It can be a difficult place. I, I think I've heard players say as well, I've played for Hearts, that it's it's great when it's rocking and they're behind you, but they're we're an impatient bunch as well. Um, we expect a lot. So uh, yeah, the atmosphere can have positive effect but it can be a tricky place and that can be um that can be something that tests the character of players so i think you have to have a certain strength if you're going to play for hearts and i think that applies to an extent to the likes of hibs and aberdeen as well and if the wind's blowing in the right direction it smells delightful doesn't it (laughs) yeah i mean not so much recently but yeah you've got the brewery slash distillery i think it's I think I know they're both a similar smell, and I, I always there's always a debate about that one. I feel like it's meant to be the distillery these days. Um, you, you don't smell it so much. I feel like, and this I don't want to get into it, but I, I think they've they start to add something to it which reduces the the smell. But there is a distillery right next to Tynecastle, and there's a brewery not far as well. So you get the the hoppy smell in the air when you're in Gorgie, which I, I used to love as a, a youngster when it was kind of constant. I, I always said to my dad. I was, I think if if you can smell the hops, hearts are going to win, which is which is bullshit because yeah, we lost quite often as well, and I'm pretty sure we could smell the hops sometimes. But it's like one of those an urban myth. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on Patreon.com/slash When Saturday Comes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy, and Harry again next time for more vital, topical, and half-decent chatter.